0: And welcome back to another episode of Magnus and Marcus on Coaching. I am Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, coach at the University of Houston, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. We're back,
1: giving the people what they want. Steve, what do the people really, really, really want?
0: Right now they want health, right? Always, man, I always want health. Always want health. And to get health, and to make sure that we are safe and secure, uh, what often we need is life insurance. And we need more life, so it might we need do. more
1: insurance for that.
0: That's right. Where can they get that? They can get that at Health IQ, which is a really innovative company. That's why we're great to uh, partner up with them because they give savings based on if you are living an active and healthy lifestyle. If you run, lift weights, bike, just throw your race results out there, throw your Strava out there to them. And uh, you'll have some pretty immense savings. So life insurance is something that often we don't think about until we kind of need it. So take time. Think about that. Go to healthiq.com slash oncoaching. You can find that in the show notes at highperformancewest.com or Science of Running. And um, check that out.
1: And don't forget, too, we're giving away two $100 checks mm-hmm. to members or not just members, audience Uh, Folk that have been listening from day one or today, if if today's your first day listening to us, all you have to do is go to highperformancewest.com. There's a tab that says $100. Click on it. Fill out the quick, easy form there. And then Steve and I will pick two people at random and send them checks for $100 in the mail. And then we'll also actually send those people an additional $100 check each to give away to something that they deem fit. So it can be any kind of cause you champion. It can be an in-need athlete. It can, Whatever it is, just let us know what you do uh, end up doing with that donation $100 check so we can highlight that, call it out, because that's what High Performance West is about, paying it forward and making a generous contribution. So we're very thankful to have a sponsor, and it's because of the people we do have a sponsor, and we're happy to pay it forward and give it back. And what are we talking about today? I don't know. we got an awesome, amazing, fabulous guest
0: on. Who we, is it, Steve? We do. Alex Hutchinson. So Alex is uh, someone whose work I've read for a really long time. Um, started off with his own little uh, blog, I believe, Sweat Science, and then moved to Runner's World, and then moved to Outside. Uh, he's become a good friend and most recently has written the absolutely fantastic book, Endure, which, you know, the it's best. It's a
1: good book. Like Alex, before we you know get done with the introduction, how long did it take you to research and write that
2: book? <laughs> First of all, hello guys, and uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, I, I started telling people I was interviewing back in 2009. I said I'm working on a book, and I'm sure they all gave up on it uh, a, a long time ago. But uh, it finally did make it to the to, 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 to light, of the light of day.
1: Yeah, no, that's why, I mean I and mean, you can tell. You can tell you were thorough with it. You, it was a slow cook. You know, very uh, in-depth book. Like you left no stone unturned. I'm sure you left a lot on the editing floor, but man, it was good. So thank you for writing it. The endurance community is better off for it. Um, and I, you know, before we get into the podcast, they well, what's your favorite part of the book? Like when you go through and you read it and you reflect on it um, in the writing process, and then also too now in the the published process. Uh, You know, your chapter, or at least the section that has a fun story or a very memorable story about how it was birthed, or just how thorough of a job you had to do to make it come to fruition.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. In terms of favorite parts, like uh, since it was cooking for so long, a lot of it became very familiar to me. So it no longer seemed so surprising. But the part that still blew my mind, so as an endurance athlete, you think about oxygen a lot. So I wanted to sort of strip away all the extra stuff and find out how, in what ways is oxygen really limiting. And that led me to reading up about free diving and looking into all the sort of, there's actually some pretty amazing research about extreme breath holding and stuff like that. And so to cut to the chase, the stuff about people holding their breath for 11 minutes and 35 seconds and understanding how that happens, that, that was the stuff that blew my mind and was freshest and, and most surprising to me. In terms of the stuff that, and I have to say, like I, I, now that the book's out, I don't reread it because it's like, it's it's painful just, uh, you know, it, it's always hard to kind of stare in the mirror that way. But if I do catch myself, uh, I still like that. In the first chapter, I tell the story of, which was really the origin story of how I got interested in this topic, which is my sort of w- weird and wild transformation where I uh, where I got better at 1500 meters because someone called out the wrong splits. And I have to admit, and, and then I try and mix that story with Roger Bannister's story, which is one that's really close to my heart uh, that that really meant a lot to me as as a runner. And and that chapter is probably my favorite to to look at and, and sort of say, hey, I have a book and it has hard covers on it and everything like that.
0: It, man, Alex, it's like you're reading off my notes. I was about to uh, tell you how much I enjoyed the free diving one because it's like, it's just different enough and I learned so much from it. And then the second part of that is, um we actually had a very similar situation here at uh Houston indoors to what you described in your in your own experience right someone actually started the official timer split clock 3 seconds too late <laughs> <laughs> and I kid you not we had kids like my 2-milers in there PR'd by I think like 7 seconds wow and it was wow. you know for those who haven't read endure like that was you know the beginning grab you a story that you told where you went from, you know, knocking at the doors of four minutes in uh, the 1500 to just smashing through it. Yeah, ex- ex-
2: exactly. It was that, that that was 1996 for me. And it was again, it was exactly that it was a three second mistake in the splits that made me think I was going faster. And I ended up PRing by uh, nine seconds. And then in the next two races, taking another seven seconds off. And it was just one of those things that shows you the brain uh, you know, could do some funny things when you're not expecting it. And I'm glad to know that your anecdote lends credence to the fact that I'm not just making this up. It really did happen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Well, yeah, take, you know, since this is the on coaching podcast and Steve and I are coaches and you've been coached by a variety of uh, established and, you know, well known as also not as well known, but amazing coaches kind of take us through your own um, uh, coaching journey or being coached journey you know, as an athlete and now transitioning kind of more to the theoretical or scientific side and then how you, you know, what's your impetus to offer this uh, workout to the community, the coaching community, and what you hope like coaches like us and coaches listening can take away from either the nuggets of knowledge you share in Endure or that you share, you know, currently in uh, your writings online with online or outside magazine or and as well as just your own uh, generous works that you continue to contribute to the community as a whole.
2: Okay, so this is going to be a two-hour answer.
0: Yeah, that's yeah right. no, that, that was a, long, <laughs> know, that was yeah, a yeah. long question. So, so I'll, <laughs> I'll simplify because John, John's a philosophy guy, yes. man. He'll, he'll just go on. Uh, on. Let, let's let's go to the start. Like, let let's maybe talk about the different types of coaches you had and like contrast those out.
2: Yeah, for sure. So I I, I got serious in when I was about fifteen in high school. Um, the way things work up in Canada, we have a, so I'm in Toronto, I'm from Canada and it's a hybrid system up here, kind of in in most things in life, we're halfway between the U S and the UK. And so, uh, like the U S we have high school track and high, high school sports, but like the UK, we also have a club system and most kids who are at all serious about running, uh, I'm generalizing, but most kids, if you're if you're a reasonably serious runner, you'll end up r- running with a track club rather rather than with your high school. So I joined a track club when I was fifteen. Basically, i'd on I had done well enough in the city championships that a, a a local coach called my school and said, "Hey, if this kid wants to come and join the real guys, he can come and train with us." And I was flattered enough that I figured I would give it a shot. And so I, I trained with a coach named Ross Restuccia. Uh, who was with the University of Toronto Track Club. And he came out of, the, he, there's a sort of uh, uh, a genealogy in 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 Toronto track that dates back to Bruce Kidd in the 1960s, who is, a, 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 I guess he ran 1343, I think, as a 17-year-old or something like that. Was one of the best guys in the world. Anyway, there, there was a group in the, at U of T, and and it was there were coaches that came through that system, and and Ross had had been a student at the University of Toronto. He'd actually been a high school when he was a high school runner. He'd trained with Andy Higgins, who was later the University of Toronto uh, coach. So he was a, a a high school coach training with like the the workout templates were very similar to to what had come out of this uh, sort of Bruce Kidd school of of the sixties and seventies. And, uh, you know, what that meant is it's, it's pretty classic. It's like, there's no like crazy weird stuff there, but, uh, you know, we had some pretty standard workouts for high school kids, you know, eight by 600, six by 800, five by a thousand, uh, relatively short rest, uh, fill up the rest of the week with, with, with mileage. So I was doing two, two workouts a week. What, what seemed to me just like the plain vanilla classic, you know, 5k of hard work, twice a week and, uh, you know, as much mileage as you can tolerate outside of that. And, and I ran okay on that. I ran, I ran really well initially off that. And then I had mono in my last year of high school. And, um, so I kind of plateaued as I, as I, as I mentioned in the book, when I went to university, this is when the first time, you know, so to me that was just how people, how you run. That's, that's, that's the way it works. And it was kind of, even though I was reading, you know, I read a lot of like Tim Noakes, lore of running all that sort of stuff and Bannister and, and, uh, so, but, but it was still a surprise to me. I went to university at McGill where the head coach, it's in Montreal and the head coach is a guy named Dennis Barrett, who was a 400, 800 meter runner in college. I think it was at New Mexico state maybe. Um, and it, it's just a, it's a different, it was a very different approach. Uh, the interesting thing was in cross country, we actually ran workouts that seemed f- fairly similar to me as soon as track came as soon as you know come december we started training in a totally different way so we'd be doing you know four by a thousand with seven minutes rest or 12 by 150 with with actually quite a surprising amount of rest those were our staple workouts even for like 3000 meter runners um and honestly like that was my first sort of crisis of faith (laughs) i i i didn't believe it was possible to run uh in this way and i i still you know like (laughs) i i can't say I, i would i would Prescribe four by a thousand with seven minutes rest to, 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 any, to anybody. But, um, what happened to me is I ran at like absolute crap for my first year and I ran like absolute crap for partway through my second year, uh, which was sort of a, and which I, to which I I attributed that to the fact that the workouts weren't the workouts I was used to. And p- partway through my second year, I had a kind of, a, a kind of come to Jesus moment where I was like, and you know the system was that you you did the you did the coach's workouts or you couldn't run for the team, and I kind of thought to myself, well, I'm running like absolute crap. I'm second guessing every workout. I'm trying to you know, whenever the coach isn't looking, I'm sneaking off and cutting the rest in half or or because i because I think I know better. And I just realized, you know, if I'm going to run for this team, this is going to be a miserable four years unless I just kind of buy into what what the program is. And I, actually, I remember I came to work out one day part through my second year and said, OK, I'm I'm going to stop. I, I didn't say this out loud because I didn't want to. Be, but in my head, I was like, I may not agree with the workouts, but if I'm going to be here and I'm going to train in this program, I'm going to give them 100 percent. And it was a I think the workout was like eight by 300, eight, eight times 300. And I was like, and, and normally I would say, well, this is a wait. I'm a I'm a distance runner. I shouldn't be trying to run as hard as I can for 300s. You know, so I'm going to try and cut the rest short and everything. I said, okay, screw it. If the if the goal is we're supposed to go as fast as we can in these 300s, I'm gonna I'm gonna gun it. And I ran like 38, 39, 39, 41, 43, 63. <laughs> and then I said, uh, coach, I don't think I can finish the workout. But he he could see that I had uh, you know I had finally kind of bought in and. And that, you know, I, I ran, I had a big breakthrough that year in the 800, and then the next year I had my big breakthrough in 1500. I, I still, I, I, I definitely don't necessarily think those workouts were optimal, but that was, I think that was an important moment for me in realizing that sometimes the details are less important than the mindset. That I was, I was constantly undercutting myself by not believing in what we were doing. And it was better to be... 100% committed to a suboptimal program then you know 60% committed to the perfect or or, or then to not be or then to not be able to uh to, to, then to not have that 100% commitment. So anyway that was McGill. After that I went to I can went we, over to Britain. Can we stop yeah yeah because that's
0: because that's too valuable. Yeah Alex, you, you, probably, you dropped a lot of nuggets Yeah in there. yeah let's <laughs> let's stop there. Cuz I think that is that is like the um the the thing that probably holds back youngest younger runners or even older runners the, the most, right, is they have this idea that the training plan has to be perfect mm. um, or it has to be like some idealized version of what has worked for them in the past um, in order to run fast. But, you know, looking at it, you know, retrospectively now and knowing what you knew, know about like from training to the science of it, uh, like how... How much do you rate that, that almost buy-in versus the actual physiological, um, you know, variables? So, yeah, I've thought about this a lot
2: as, as, and we can talk more about this. But, like, I, I think there it, it is possible to do workouts that are absolute garbage. Like, there, there is a point at which it's like, you know, you'd be better off sitting on the couch than doing, you know, a thousand times uh, 400 meters or whatever. But there's a very, very broad range where I think the details are are really, really, only matter at the margin and and getting the mindset and things like that right is is more important and i I, I always feel sort of funny saying this this kind of thing because it sounds like I'm sort of uh, dismissing <laughs> the, the, the reality of physiology and <laughs> which which I don't, but it's like if if you're doing. Five by a thousand versus six by a thousand if you're doing two minutes rest versus three minutes rest Yeah, there are measurable differences in what those workouts mean but ultimately if you're getting the I, I think like the more important parameters are things like How tired are you at the end of that workout? How hard did you work? Because if if you're worried about the difference between five by five by a thousand versus six by a thousand Well, if it's five just go harder and if it's six go a little bit easier If it's if it's two by a thousand, you're not going to get, you know, then you're out out of that comfort zone. But I I, I really think the within a sort of range of common sense, the details are far less important than uh, than than we think. And certainly, as as you're sort of suggesting, then then the the 15 year olds on the message boards uh, lamenting how stupid their high school coaches are, uh, maybe realize that there's the sort of epidemic of self-doubt that's been fueled by the Internet, I think.
1: Well, I think, you know, everyone's searching for the holy grail. What's the perfect workout, perfect system? Can we be empowered by physiology? Can we be empowered by psychology? Can we be empowered by whatever, you know, your um, yeah, your god or goddess is to say, this is what's going to give me confidence to then operate under this construct or this paradigm that will lead me to the promised land, which is... You know, which everyone wants is their best incarnation of themselves. Nine times out of ten, though, right, we are sitting here talking about time. Time as the measure. Time is the fundamental only measure for the, the best that you can be. Steve and I, you know, we, we try to say it is a measure to be considered, an important one, don't get us wrong, but it has to be coupled with how competitive are you. If we're in the, the world of performance, performance is not just this pure exhibitionist thing, such as like trying to break four for the two-hour marathon, or, um, or excuse me, trying to break two for the marathon or four for the mile, and just doing a time trial essentially, Um, by yourself with everyone watching that has its place and is exciting but competition is the crucible that you know 99.999% of us are preparing for and that performance element has a deep psychological narrative uh, infused you have to be able to be engaged in what you're doing, and find a reason to persevere and endure, if you will, um, even when conditions are suboptimal, right? It's torrential downpour, it's a tornado. Uh, you know, thunderstorm, it's sideways wind coming at you at 20 miles an hour. What happens to that when the athlete is constantly trying to find the perfect training plan, the perfect splits, the perfect per- um progression of this and then go to these perfect uh environmental races where it's perfect pacing and it's too much perfect right it's like (laughs) and then all of a sudden they get to the uh uh, rounds of a championship where it's like you know it's hot and humid or cold and windy and they completely flounder you know how you know you and you kind of express that once you gave yourself permission here and you set yourself free all of a sudden it, it wasn't necessarily it didn't matter If you agreed or not with the workout, you just bought in. And then you said, I'm going to make the most of it. And then all of a sudden, you saw this huge return. How do you reconcile that? Like now, looking back in the rearview mirror, how important was that permission to what you were doing versus being your own uh, psychological barrier or obstacle because you're second-guessing yourself every step of every run and workout?
2: Yeah. You know, honestly, that – that three hundred workout I just described, you know, I, I don't think it had any particular physiological physiology meaning. It's that's still probably the fastest I've ever run a 300, <laughs> <that> first, first <laughs> interval at workout, like, like quite honestly. But it, it's you know, it's not like that workout was a physical breakthrough for me. But I don't think I would have made the progress I ever would have made if I hadn't had that specific psychological or mental conversation with myself uh, about belief. And I think it it's one that. You know, you like to think that you learn a lesson and, and it becomes uh, and, and you've learned it once and for all, but that's not really the way things work. You often have to relearn the same lesson over multiple times. And it's and it's one that, uh, you know, I had lots of ups and downs in my in my running career, m- certainly more downs than ups. Um, but often, there, you know, I, I'd come to a point where I'd be realizing oh, I'm, I'm caught in that same loop again where I'm expecting things to be a certain way or I'm I'm all, all about, you know, I have to nail this, these certain workouts in order to be ready to race. Uh, and, and instead of just sort of building that general belief in myself of, of being capable of responding to whatever the circumstances are, or, you know, I've, i am I've, I've moved for career reasons. I'm no longer training with a group that I'm comfortable with. I no longer have the training partners I used to, I no longer have the coach, you know, how can I run well? And, and, uh, in, so in a sense, I had to relearn that lesson over and over again a number of times and try and recapture that like, hey, the details don't get mired in the details. Remember the big picture about believing in what you're doing overall. So I think I, I think it was crucial. I think it was more important than I think you could have written a completely different set of workouts for me. But with the same mindset, I, I, I would have got to roughly the same place.
1: Well contrast that now with you know continuing your, your journey of being coached you know and then um say moving on with uh Centric senior who you know he doesn't take any BS as we know so you know and you're a very you know intelligent uh, analytical um, and reflective uh, you know person so how how did that relationship work I'm I'm curious to know
2: Yeah so to give some context I I I moved to Washington in 2000 and just the beginning of 2002 so I was twenty six then, I guess. <coughs> and I was excuse me, I, and I was coming back. I just coming back from injury at that point, but I, I was I had run three forty two at that point. And I spent the next two and a half years training with with Centro's group, which was at the time a sort of remnants of what used to be the, the Reebok Enclave in Washington. So there were there were some fast guys around, Andre Williams and Pete Sherry, guys who'd run in the sort of thirteen thirty range. Um and yeah, C- Centro centro senior is a legend right like so a lot of people have heard the stories and he's a he's a character and uh my experience with him i i you know in a sense i kind of wish i could go back in time and do it again with a little more uh uh you know context and and sort of having thought these things through but it, it was difficult in in some ways for me because yeah, Centro is the the most intuitive coach I've ever worked with. He was all about feeling uh, all the things that I've just been giving lip service to over the last five minutes saying, oh, you have to have confidence in yourself. You have to, you know, don't, don't fret about the details. He was the, the sort of Yoda of that kind of thing. Whereas I was like, Okay, but but how fast am I exactly? How fast am I supposed to run this thing? Or you know, like when are we gonna race? Like what what's what are my goals? What are my season goals? How am I gonna progress to the point where I want to run this qualifying time? I'm not gonna do it my first time out. So if I want to get into the fast heat at Stanford, then I need to have run fast enough here. At, so I need to run a, a, a icebreaker there so that I can go here to run fast enough to get into Stanford to run the qualifying time I want for you know. Anyway. I, I was a mess, right? Like I, I was, I was a, I was an analytical guy, and Centro was a college coach, a busy college coach, who you know, who would let some post collegiate guys train with his with his group, but was not like, you know, you communicated with Centro via his answering machine. He never picked up the phone, but you could, you would you would call and leave a message on his analog answering machine <laughs> yeah. to let it's, him know how the workout went and to kind of cry into the phone, saying, please, to return my call, tell me when I'm gonna race, It kind of like, reminds me like
1: 12 Monkeys, right? You remember that movie, <laughs> Bad Pit and Bruce Willis? Like tw- you just leave an answer. okay, I hope you guys in the future will get this, I need to be beam back. Like
2: <laughs> <laughs> That that was what it felt like, and I was monkey number 13, right? the, the, the one who, who the, you, know, uh, you know, I was just the Canadian kid, I'd, you know, I was not that fast, uh, I was not that, anyway, it, it was a challenge, for me and 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 all these other things like I mean I could you know again I could do two hours on on the experience of running for Centro like and if you ask me about things like splits and worrying about pace I'll say you need to learn to internalize it you know we shouldn't be too reliant on gadgets that's what I write in articles right well when I was training with Centro the situation would be like okay I want you to run this you know this 1264s and don't screw up and so I you know I'm taking off leading a group uh, I'm supposed to run 64 for the first lap. And it's like, I feel like the world's going to explode if I don't. So it, got, it went from the point where I'd be checking my my watch at 400 to then I would start checking at 200 first, just to make sure I wasn't screwing up the pace. And before long, I was checking literally, and I, I, I kid you not, I, I would check my splits at 100, 200, 300, and then 400 to make sure when I came through. Everything was going to go be OK. Now, the reality, as I later learned, is that Center usually missed the start with his watch anyway and was just making up a time that he would yell at you when you went by. He, he didn't give a damn. But I was I was stressed about it. And so he would see me checking and then he would say, you know, hey, Canadian, take off your damn watch, throw it in the infield. So I'd be in the middle of a mile rep or something and I'd have to take off my watch and throw it in the infield and hope that people didn't step on it. And, you know, there's nothing more naked feeling than being a time obsessed, analytical runner trying to hit your splits and not having a watch on. And knowing that your coach isn't really timing it, he's just pretending to. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's like it. I, th- there's, there's so much wisdom there that I feel like I could have gained. Uh, but it was, a, it was too big a step for me at the time. I, 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 right. I, I, had, I had a lot of trouble with it. Well, it's a security,
1: um, right? It's a security blanket. Having the hard, fast, um, quantitative measures, right, it gives you the security that you did or didn't do a good job. And when you're talking to Yoda, who's more like qualitative about it, and he's saying, well, feel it, you know, be be one, you know, z- you know, ohm type deal. You're like, be the ball, be yeah, the ball. Yeah, be the ball.
2: In, in yeah. Yeah,
1: it's like people, are, you know, it, it, it puts people kind of in this blizzard or a fog and you're not, there's no way to orient yourself, right? Yeah. And so, what, what am I
2: going to write in my training log? If I don't know the split, what am I going to write for that interval? Like, it's going to be a disaster. My training log is going to have an estimate instead of the correct time.
1: <laughs> and, I mean, you know, that's the thing about track, right? We have precision. Like, we measure time on the track down to the hundredth of the second, right? I mean, we can go to the thousandths if we wanted. And place does count. So, we do have it's, – it's tough to reconcile. Like, we keep score for a reason. It matters, right? But at yeah, the same yeah, yeah. time, the process to get the outcome has to be much more improv, improv Uh, Yeah, a spirit of play, like a spirit of improv, a spirit of, okay, let's explore and discover rather than let's execute with precision this race strategy and plan that's about running each lap at this exact pace. Instead, being ready to do what matters at the crucial moment in a race to compete to the best of your ability. And that's – it's a very tough bridge, you know, and I struggle with that a lot too with um, athletes and myself included when I was an athlete to, to, you know, get from one side of the cliff to the other as a coach or as an athlete to have faith or trust and belief in this, you know, very big pie-in-the-sky thing called the process. And how's the process – you know, actualize these very hard and fast outcomes that we seek as well, where there's lots on the line, right? Whether it's um, uh, hard, fast dollars, whether it's pre- prestige or esteem, or whether it's just a satisfaction for any athlete of a job well done and having all the work and effort and energy put into it. Steve, what about you? Like, you know, how have you being, you know, outnumbered here two to one science to philosophy guys today.
0: How have you kind of reconciled that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, as an athlete, I was I was much more like Alex, right? Yeah, I recorded everything. I mean, I had my miles to, you know, before GPS watches down to, you know, the point, right? Um, very much similar to what Alan Webb kind of does too with his – or did with his workout splits and stuff like that. I had everything. And I think – it's really about, you know, learning these lessons like Alex talked about and here and like letting go a little bit and understanding what's what's important. You know, I would argue and I'm curious to hear, uh, Alex, your take on this. I would argue when you're, you know, when you're an athlete, you think the workout splits are important because you need them, like you need to hit those to give you the confidence to race because you think if I do this in a workout, then I'll do, you know, why in a race. Uh, well as a coach like you you quickly see that that isn't is isn't the value that we get out of workouts
2: Yeah, boy, I have a lot to say on that like for, for first of all just directly to your point there So there were these older wiser veterans in Centro's group and one of them was Pete Sherry. And I remember him Saying to me early on like listen the goal isn't to go faster every time we do a workout as the season progresses and he, he said he had this conversation with Bob Kennedy and he said what Bob Kennedy told him is that, look, the goal is to run the same splits, but to feel better doing it. At the end, maybe you'll be doing these these miles in in still in four twenty four. Basically, uh, I think what I was saying was that that. Uh, yeah, the, the point isn't the, the point isn't to run as, as Steve was saying, the point isn't to run X in a workout, run as fast as you can so that it leads to the fastest possible race. That's not how it works. So you don't get to trade in six, four twenty miles in workouts for a 1330 in, in a race. That's, you know, so you have, you have to change your mindset to getting what you need out of the workout, not just, uh, you know, marking up the scoreboard. But I also wanted to just uh, pick up on something John said uh, before about finding that balance between the the sort of analytical side and the feeling side, which is that I guess like six, five or six years later after I trained with Centro, I was back in Toronto, not training quite as seriously, but, but, but training with a bunch of, uh, actually back training with my old high school coach, but with a bunch of other post-collegiate runners, we had a great group. And I was much more by this point, I was kind of a convert to, to Centro's, uh, point of view. And we, we did a cross country buildup where we didn't actually do any measured loops for for almost the whole season. We just, we were out doing grass loop training, like, and we had a good enough group that we could push each other and, and we were doing great workouts, but we never went to the track and we never went to, we did have some measured grass loops, but we didn't do them that particular fall. And what happened is we we showed up for the national cross country championships and we all ran, disappointingly, we all ran slower than we, we were, than we had the year before and then, that we were sure we were capable of. and, I think that we'd kind of let the let the pendulum swing too far to the other side that you need some accountability. Like John was saying, like the the, the times do matter. That's how we measure performance. And so at a certain point, if you're just saying, I just want to go with there every Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday and feel good. Uh, no, sometimes you need to go out and say, well, how, how does this feeling good correspond to how fast I can run for a bunch of K reps? Um, and, and if it's not as, if it's not as fast as you, as, as you think it is, then you have to say, okay, actually I need to feel a little, I I need to push a little harder. I need to get out there. So I do think it's not all about like just, uh, feeling good is feeling fast. Sometimes you have to, you, you do need some splits. You do need some accountability, uh, and external sources.
0: Well, well, you make a good point there because you're, you're almost calibrating, right? You need points to like calibrate against like a known standard. And that's what, certain workouts do right they give us a feel of like oh this is this is how it feels this is kind of you know kind of where i'm at uh versus kind of just going all by feel you never have that calibration um and you never fine-tune that sensor and you can think of that in, in the in the micro and the macro scale.
2: So in the, on the season scale, you need some workouts that you know how fast that workout should go and occasionally you need to check in on that. Within a workout, it's like, I'm all in favor of knowing how fast you're going if you're doing a track workout. I'm all in favor of taking splits, just not every 100 meters. So it's like you need to, or, or, or even worse with the GPS watch, not every 10 meters. So it's 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 like you said, it's a question of calibrating to make sure you're on course without having your eyes glued to the calibration device.
1: And sometimes it needs to be, uh, you know, I, I famously try to um, remind my athletes that watch's job is to record, not necessarily direct, right? So you record the session and then afterwards you can get as many splits as you'd like and then see trends or see patterns and see, you know, you can take as many data sets if you want. You can take 200-meter splits, 100-meter splits, but if during the activity it's removing you from the activity and removing you being present in that process and instead of saying, okay, I need to analyze – mid-stride what time I'm running for that previous 100 and then make this micro-adjustment, you're ultimately um, uh, distinguishing or using up your emotional bandwidth, right, for the more important work, which is to say, okay, how do I – translate this familiarization of running at this rhythm internally with also externally where I am in the pack if it's a workout with a group or external conditions and then how can I use that to my advantage come race day so I'm not completely crippled by the fact when I'm going at what's perceived effort to be 15 seconds for 100 or 60 seconds for 400 and the watch says 65 right and that's that's an important shift because it's a I always say it's a balanced plate you know, we know the most nourishing meals are, are well-balanced. And when you go too heavy one way, all, all analytics, or you go too heavy the other way, all kind of, you know, this, as Lauren Fleshman says, like this woo-woo, like just very, you know, hippie-ish mentality, like it's just all good. Take some deep breaths and we'll just, you know, have the wind guide us forward. You know, you can't really <laughs> give anyone uh, a concrete direction. Uh, you know, you're going to be at a loss. And I think every athlete has a different um, balance profile. Because I remember, for balance, is not a direct ratio. It's the correct proportion for that person that empowers them. Because that's ultimately, right, the goal of working out is to feel empowered. Is to feel like, okay, I can go do something very difficult. I can go show up and create something from nothing. That's what a race is. A race is a very creative process. You're birthing it from scratch. But if you're not empowered, then... You know what's the purpose of the busy
2: yeah yeah so t- t- that that's really important points and i think two two things to jump out that jump out at me first of all what you were saying about how to use data which i think is a really broad point of importance to in in the age of wearables i am a hundred percent on board with what you said about use collect data to look at it you know use it to describe what you're doing rather than to prescribe what you're doing in the moment so i i think there's there's a ton of great use for data I think it's 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 dangerous if you if you're trying to look at it uh, if, if you're trying to let the data tell you what to do as opposed to tell you what you did. Um, so I, I think that's a that's a that's an amazing approach. The other thing about the the balance between that that's different for different people. And again, you know, coming back to to Centro, he had great success with and he has continued to but he had great success with some athletes and I would sometimes ask so when I was training there there were two guys uh, Sean O'Brien and Sean Duffy who were both like high 330 1500 guys um, and you know obviously they ran really well and sometimes I'd be like guys, how, do you, how do you handle this it's like yesterday he told me to run 10 miles I ran 10 miles today he yelled at me for running 10 miles he said why didn't you run six like he explicitly told me to do that I just did, and, and, and they'd be like dude relax man like Sometimes things don't make sense with Centro, but if you just sort of relax, don't worry about the details and listen to what he says, he'll get you where you need to go. He 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 knows what the ultimate prize is. And so they were able to kind of even even when they were sort of get get sometimes getting contradictory instructions or whatever, they 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 didn't stress about it and they they were able to to kind of put that aside and and have faith that he was taking them in the in the right place. And I remember at one point they both qualified for NCAA's and they were heading off to run uh, the 1500 and NC's. And so he got he, he took them aside to give them some advice on how to run a tactical 1500, a championship 1500 race. And he you know he did, pulled me aside too because he knew I was running sort of uh, not quite at that level but but close to it. And, he's, and he and he gave this this long explanation of like okay you know. The the semifinals of a championship 1500, you know, it's all about timing and tension. It's kind of like, you know, when you walk into a bar and you can just feel in the air, you know, there's going to be a fight. You don't know who's going to have the fight. You don't know where it's going to come from, but you know, there's going to be a fight. And what you need to do is just kind of feel that tension in the air. And just before the first punch is going to get thrown, bam, you throw it. And, And so I'm sitting there thinking like, I've never even seen anybody throw a punch. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've, I've never I've never seen a bar fight. I don't know what is it what do you mean by tension? How do I measure it? But so I, I was kind of on the wrong wavelength. But but for the, you know, but I could also see that that for for Sean and Sean who were about to head to the NCAAs, they were kind of they were able to kind of pick up the message he was giving them and and they they were both very good, you know, they were classic guys in fact who were better in championship racing than in in time trials that they they ran some of their best times responding to other people and being able to feel that 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 kind of tension of the pack and you look at Matt Centrum junior now what is his brilliance his brilliance is is feeling the tension in the pack you look at that olympic final it's like he was feeling the punches before they came and and fending them off or or throwing his own jab and it's like you know, I wish I was better than that and I wish I'd had longer in my career to kind of try and learn that from Centro, even though it definitely was not my sort of intuitive strength.
1: Well, it's a magnitude of correctness versus frequency of correctness, right? The frequency of correctness is I hit every split, I ran every mile, I have all this data that reaffirms, creates this blanket of security that I'm ready to go. And then you, because you operate with that mindset, you get to a championship race where you now It's much more subtle. It's much more undefined. You know, you don't know what's going to happen because everyone's more jockeying and um, competing against the other person rather than competing with the clock or competing against their own um, ability, right? And that's the brilliance of, like, say, Central here. He knew the magnitude of correctness. The thing that mattered most was his ability to perform or throw the first punch in that type of setting. Right, that, that council is much different for a round of a championship race of a fifteen hundred than it is saying going to Oxy or um well, Track Festival or something or Monaco and just lighting it out from the first step.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, your your story there kinda of reminds me of actually what Danny Mackey said on a recent podcast when he was talking about uh Drew Wendell winning a uh, a silver medal at the World Endors. He was saying like Hey, the key to tactics is is not to react, but to anticipate it. Right? To know, hey, I've seen this movie before. Here's what's about to come, and like I have to be the one to like dictate, take take control. And as you said, that's what uh, that's what Sinterwitz Jr. does absolutely brilliant, brilliantly. Yeah, and
2: and uh, of course we'd all like to think we could learn to be like Centro I, I obviously he has some great like just intuition But I think that is definitely something that you can get better at and I know that looking back at my own racing experience I sort of got locked into trying to chase fast times and and all I wanted to do was get in a rabbited race tuck in near the back Turn my mind off till the last 300 and I think that was to my detriment not just in terms of championship racing but I think who knows? I think I might have been able to run faster sometimes had I not just had that time trialing mindset that I that I got into. And I think some, I, I'm I'm a big believer now in in picking some races where you just take tactical risks and and experience what it's like to blow up a lap from the finish, like or or, or you know whatever you don't do normally. Try that and just kind of f- feel what different tactics are like, because I, I, I do think I, I and I'm certainly not I don't think I was alone in this g- kind of get got fossilized into one way of running races instead of being able to react to this the circumstances.
0: Yeah, there, there are two different types of skills. And um, I'm going to take you on a tangent here, but that's what we're known for, um, <laughs> which is interesting because I think it, it kind of ties into this is I have to ask you about the uh, sub-two-hour marathon attempt, right? Because the reason that is, because that is a straight, you know, tuck in, turn your mind off, and go, right? Versus a tactical kind of skill set type race here. Um, But what's interesting about that sub-two attempt is, arguably, you know, for for the three who ran it, one knocked it out of the park, one ran pretty solid, and one one blew up, right? Um, so as the person with uh, feet on the ground over there and going through what we just talked about, these two separate skills of time trial, uh versus racing and looking at someone, um, Kipchoge, who has both of those skills, like what what was your maybe big takeaway from uh, being over there and seeing that live?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's. It was interesting, and I would say oh, it was really interesting, despite all the controversy. Like, let's 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 get that on the table. That of, of course, of course, there were there was lots to dislike about a big sort of staged event like that. But I think simultaneously, it was also absolutely fascinating, and especially the way it played out. Um, and it is interesting what you say about the different mindsets. Like De who ran what two fourteen or something like that, Lelisa De He he was selected for the project. On the basis of, first of all, he had great labs, lab tests. His 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 physiological parameters were were impressive. But his competitive resume was that he had done well. He had won Boston twice. He had run well in New York. He had run well at Worlds. These are all head-to-head mano a mano kind of kind of races where time is is meaningless, and there may have been other uh, there was certainly other stuff going on with the sissa in that he didn't uh, he he got injured before and he was running like two hundred miles a week and uh, trying to compensate and so who who knows what his potential was on that day but uh, it, it I think there's something to the idea that he also he hadn't really demonstrated that he was a a good time trial marathoner he he he, he maybe needed to be feeling like he was trading blows with someone and and he may be good at that kind of intuitive uh, Feeling other people's weaknesses, knowing when to move, because he he had demonstrated that in other races. Kipchoge, as he said, he had he you know he's obviously got both. He's he's won big races on the track. He's got a great kick, but he's he also proved to be able to, uh yeah, really run the, the sort of ultimate, um feedback free race where there's nothing going on except just trying to stick stick with that car. And in terms of my perspective or what I took away from that, it it, it keeps evolving actually as time goes on. Because with more perspective, first of all, uh, you know, one thing that I can say that I w- I, w- I didn't kn- I wouldn't have known right after the race. It's like, no, De Sissa and Tedessa didn't end up going and running 203 or 204 that fall, um, and maybe they will this spring. But it's like I was surprised, and, and and you know, talking to the scientists, they all thought, okay, yeah, they blew up because they were trying to run two two hour pace, which was too much. But if we'd had them on 203 204 pace, we would have seen something special from De Sissa and Tedessa. And that has definitely not been the case. So it it sort of uh, makes me reflect or sort of think carefully about whether they really knew what those guys were capable of and whether, you know, how much of their disappointing performance in in breaking two was because they just weren't as fit as they could have been and how much was because of the specific circumstances of the race. But the other the other big takeaway that that has kind of grown on me, I think, is the importance of Kipchoge's mindset um, that. Uh, you know, yeah, when I was writing about the project for Runner's World, I was all f- focused on, you know, how do the shoes work? Do they really give you 4% running economy? How was the drafting, you know, the role, you know, how uh, about the carbohydrate intake, all these sorts of things. But looking back on it, it really does feel like Kipchoge had this sort of special. Um, th- so there's something, again, that, you know, like like Centro, he, he, he really come away from talking to him, feeling like he has some sort of really special presence of mind, self, self-confidence self that, and and something that I think he works on, you know, all this stuff about how he, he reads uh, motivational self-help books and stuff like that. It's like, I think he he works on that in his own way. He's not, he doesn't just roll out of bed feeling ready to conquer the world. He, he tries to cultivate that sense of belief in, in, in his particular way. And so I, I've come away with a lot more Respect for stuff that I think to go back to Lauren Fleshman's term the the woo-woo stuff You know, like and I've, I've told this story a few times the first time I met Kipchoge he had just run uh, It was like six months before the race He had just run a half marathon in India in like 59 45 or something like that and I said uh, You know, okay, you're gonna you're gonna have to go twice as far at roughly the same pace So what are, what kind of changes are you gonna make in your training? And his answer was I'm not gonna change my training The training will be the same. My mind will be different and, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, OK, but that's, you know, that doesn't tell me anything. And that, you know, that sounds like a horrible plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, December 2016, what I what I my my my, my thought was that that, you know, that that doesn't mean anything. Like, please. Now, uh, you know, a year and a half later, I said, actually, I think that did mean something. And I, I just wasn't kind of on the right wavelength that that was that was. To him, the most important thing, because he said it over and over again in other interviews, he said that kind of thing that to him, creating the belief that he was ready to run sub two was the most important thing to him. And and I, 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 didn't, I couldn't hear it at the time. But looking back, I now kind of think that that was maybe a, a, a really important message.
1: Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because we want, and science is based off, um, ex, you know, instruments that explicitly measure certain elements, right? And then we can say a certainty... This is your VO2 max. This is your lactate threshold. This is your pH in your blood. We have this concreteness about it, right? And training, the seductiveness of training can be this concept of concreteness because we know exactly we're going to run this rep at this pace, these many, and the story. And then you get into the competitive arena and you hear the masters of craft. And this goes, you know, um, in my own uh, research in self-guided learning, Uh, you know trying to intersect or learn from masters of craft is it's very much more this internalization the hard part is the belief part the psychology the hard part is the um,
0: you know not the faith if you will right belief in the absence of proof so you know one of the things that i think is you know kind of cool to me is Think about it. We had this huge science project, essentially, right, where we're measuring all these different training variables, having all these interventions. And, like, we're sitting here and reflecting on it and it, not talking necessarily about that stuff, but talking about the psychology, the mindset. The
2: intangibles.
0: Right. Yes. The intangibles. Like, is that, I mean, that's kind of, it, yeah, it's kind of interesting to
2: you you have no idea how frustrating it is to me as a science journalist I, like I, I want a nice study with with peer review and some i want a graph that i can show uh you know that's that's what i want in my sort of make my life easy as a science journalist but at the end of the day yeah i, I mean it's it's well, something you can't
1: it, replicate right like the mona lisa the michelangelo's david you can't replicate it a kipchoge you can't replicate and since science is about having you know hold hard concrete facts and processes and say there there is a a recipe here and we can replicate to a certain degree physiology yeah we can say these types of sessions with this type of work to rest ratio at this intensity will create this physiological response but again sometimes it's just nice to enjoy the piece of art for what it is
2: yeah for sure and you know john you were saying that you know you you see similar patterns as you you know in in your study of masters of the craft in, in whatever the craft and i think that's true i think you know as special as Kipchoge is, we can look back at, at uh, you know, whether it's John Wooden or, or, or you know, what, whatever other masters the past, a lot of them have also spoken in similar ways about the importance of process and the importance of belief. Um, and the, we certainly for me, and I think I'm not alone in this, you tend to kind of put that in one box. That's kind of like the motivational self-help box. And then there's the science box. And uh, you know, so I don't know. Will in ten years, will Kipchoge's uh, motivational words just be in that long line of people who happen to be really good at something and uh, and spoke about their the the power of belief in this way, or will will there be a change? I guess the one thing that's maybe interesting to me, is, and and the, you know, not to work in the gratuitous book plug, but the, in in researching the book, the, I think the reason that I'm Now sort of more comfortable saying yeah, I think this stuff is important is That there is some research now people are trying to quantify it in 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 indirect ways looking at the role of things like motivational self-talk and finding That yeah, it allows you to let's say it allows you to push your core temperature a little higher So you're digging deeper into reserves when you change your self-talk, but your perceived effort stays the same and you can start to quantify that so lots of people would say you shouldn't need a stupid study like that to tell you what Kipchoge and the other greats have been telling you all along. And I'm, all I can say is I'm sorry I needed it, (laughs) you know, but, but at least my eyes are opening now. Right. So I'm, 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 I'm hopefully sort of, um, you know, just starting to walk down that path of trying to understand what it is that people like Kipchoge have been trying to tell us.
0: Yeah. So, so kind of piggybacking on that a little bit, um, as someone who also has a science and analytical mind on things, what I'm really interested to hear you talk about a little bit on that side is is the filtering portion of it, right? So if you look at coaches, right, our job is to take some of the scientific information and filter it for application of stuff. Um, but as you know, as a scientist, scientist and a journalist um, in that field, like it can be really, really difficult to figure out what is actually good and what what is bad, right? Or what might not work or what is junk science for lack of a term. So maybe simplifying this question a little bit is what, what kind of advice would you give to coaches to be able to do what it is you do, right? Compare and write up what, what might be the actual impact of uh, some of these, this research.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a, a an important and a tough question because I, I've often thought to myself that if I had a time machine and I, you know, I was suddenly 20 years younger and wanted to compete again, uh, the one of the best things I could do is, would be to turn off this part of my mind that's so interested in digging into, you know, so so skeptical and and trying to analyze evidence that that it's it's almost uh, self defeating in a way that all I do is kind of uh, break all the the levers that might otherwise help me go faster. Um, I don't fully believe that. Like, I do believe it's good to know what works and what doesn't, that you shouldn't just kind of close your eyes and assume everything works. But I think it's really challenging because uh, I think there's a lot of benefit to be had. We, we've talked, you know, throughout this time about the power of belief and stuff and, and believing in what you're doing. So, you know, the the state of science in this area is still kind of young enough that, it's possible to doubt everything. It's po- you you can find someone who's informed who will tell you you know name any workout name any supplement name any training approach. You can find someone who's like uh, I guarantee that doesn't work. I have science to back it up. You know this study shows that actually if you want to run marathons, you should just be doing like hill reps twice a week or something like that. Like the the science is not definitive, so you have to kind of uh, like. Uh, you have to do a filtering function, and and, and in, I think in some cases it's useful to have to outsource some of that filtering function to someone like you guys, to, to to people like you guys, to people like me, because not every coach can look at every study and evaluate every claim. So you have to find people you trust. And then from the practical perspective, I think the big thing, I think Trent Stellingworth, who's a you know a coach and scientist in in uh, Victoria, B.C. with the Canadian Olympic team, he articulates this really well that it's not that you have to have a hundred percent certainty that everything you do with your athletes is a hundred percent proven to work. You should make sure that the balance of probabilities is that this is a reasonable thing to do with, uh, where it's po- it's reasonable to expect that it should help without relying on any magical spells. And then, if you're going, if you decide you're going to do it, you should try and. Convey to your athletes your confidence, your faith—not that it's 100%. We we know for sure it's going to work, but that there's good reason to think this is going to help you, and we're going to do it, and that's going to make sure that you are the best, are getting the best possible preparation to be at your best on race day. So we're we're doing this, and we're going to keep evaluating and make sure that we're not doing things that are useless. And and if you can create that, then you get the best of both worlds. So that hopefully you've chosen interventions, whether it's training or, or supplements or whatever. That, that, that work physiologically, but also that create the confidence in the athletes that they're doing, that, that they're getting the best possible training or interventions. So, um, but, but choosing which ones, I think, is, 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 is kind of a, a Sisyphean task where you, everything you think you know gets wiped out every, every week right, when you open up the, the, the new journals.
1: Well, it matters what contests you're preparing for,
2: right? So, if you're preparing for a
1: time trial contest, an exhibition like Kipchoge, and this is why I tell people, like a Kipchoge is one of the greats because he can dunk a basketball and he can make three-pointers and swishes all day. Not every player in the NBA can do both. Some can only dunk, some can only shoot a three-pointer, but they're still effective NBA players. He just has range that very few have, right? And so from an exhibitionist standpoint, from a time trial, from a get your qualification mark standpoint that's a certain type of training for that contest and then the other contest that we've been talking about here is now more the artistic contest feeling out the improvisational component of a championship race where you don't know who's going to make a move where you don't know is going to be seesawing fast and slow and nine times out of ten right we think we live in a world where we do have exhibition um, contest at our disposal but it's the equivalent of saying okay in MLB baseball all we're going to do is home run derbies all the time and we're just going to train for home run derbies and you're going to get the pitch at the same thing and it's just going to come on the machine and just try to knock it out of the park and we're going to train like that only and then we're gonna to try to put you in the World Series on game seven, and you know ninth uh, inning, with everything on the line, and then we're just gonna say, yep, you're prepared. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't understand there are differences in contests within the games we play, within the season, right? And so that's where as a coach, you have to be able to um, explore the science, explore the research, explore the literature, explore also the psychology, because I tell people all the time, I see physiology contradicted every day of practice by psychology. And I also see physiology win 100% every day of practice as well, sometimes in the same session, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, you shouldn't be able to do this. You're exhausted. But they got so motivated or they got – The athlete got so excited or just focused, right, that they overcame the physiological barriers that were happening with them, and they crushed the rep. Or the exact inverse: they were so tanked, or they were the the acidosis stays in their, um, you know, internally was just so high they couldn't buffer any more lactate as fuel. Everything just started to immediately decelerate and slow down, and they just looked like gunk on that 200, right? Because they're at the end of the session. So it's a yin and yang. It's a push and pull. You know, I wish it was constant, but I always remind people, training's like the weather, right and, and we have a billion dollars of uh instruments to predict the weather and yet we're only about 50 percent as good you know or only at about a 50 percent ability it's just as good if we guess right but we have a billion dollars of all this meteorological equipment it's the same deal here it doesn't discredit the science it actually empowers us right it empowers us to give us um a little bit more not certainty but education and awareness and say okay Hey, here's how these things might work in balance, or things that definitely don't work. Like you said, don't sit here and do a thousand times 400 and think you're getting better because you're the toughest person on the planet, all out CrossFit. But also, too, don't say here you're going to sit here and just do one all out 400 every day, and that's going to get you better for a marathon, right? And so it's knowing what the tolerance is, how wide or how narrow your tolerance is um, for each event. It is, and the contest you're training for within that event i think we lose that sometimes i think we think all races are the same so there there's a perfect training plan but I've watched people run a lot of different 1500s throughout the years, and that's the ask, that's the demand, right? As you know yourself, being a 1500-meter runner,
2: <laughs>
1: you can't say, oh, all marathons are the same. We have to train for all marathons like this. Like what happens when you have Boston on a hot year or Boston on a cold year or you know, bo- uh, CIM on a tail end <laughs> year? There's all these different variables on the day on that contest that we sometimes forget when we talk about the certainty of training
2: model. I think those are great points. And let me just add one thing about knowing the context and also knowing the context of the relative importance of things, just in terms of which things are worth fretting about most. Like you said, you know, we've all seen whether it's a race or a workout, if your head's in the right place versus in the wrong place, that's like 10% difference. So that's way more important than 0.5% difference that you might get if you, you know, use baking soda correctly or whatever the case may be. So, and, and the, and, and same with the, 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 workouts as you're saying, like getting the basic details of the workout is 99% of it. And then if you optimize the rest or your interval or do, you know, optimize the pacing just right, then maybe that's the extra 1%. So allocating your energies, uh, and your mental energy towards the areas that make the biggest difference rather than spending all your time worried about the margins.
0: Yeah, 100%. So, um, as we're getting near the end of this, I, I wanted to ask, you know, especially coming back to your book, Endure, like, you know, it's this mix of physiology and psychology. And, you know, what I really appreciated is that you didn't wrap it up with some tidy, neat answer, right? <laughs> Believe me, I, 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 I wanted to, it's just I couldn't find it. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, come on, I, I need to have the, the, the cereal box version of this. but it, Yeah, it no, I, as a writer at, and scientist, I respect that because it's a uh, – you know, it's much easier to uh, just kind of wrap it up and be like, "Ah, oh, this is it. Let's let's forget the nuance and the details of there." What you know, especially looking at you know uh, the different demands of uh, fatigue and you know how it holds us back in separate ways. What do you think? And we've talked a lot about self or self talk here. What do you think is a takeaway for the the coach or the athlete listening in terms of you know approaching that? that psychological side or that barrier of fatigue. Yeah. I, I mean, I think
2: one of the things, and we, we, again, we touched on this earlier and it's sort of the, uh, maybe a, a, uh, a, a takeaway from my adventures with Centro is that you have to understand the athlete as an individual. And, and, and so I, so, I mean, to, to take a step back, I think that I don't think my book tells us anything new about, you know, how to improve your vo2 max But I think uh, to me at least the takeaway the takeaway I I came away with is is the importance of understanding these mental factors that 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 limits that feel physical are often mediated by the brain in ways that we don't really uh, That that aren't obvious until you start digging under the surface. And so uh, In looking for ways to expand your performance. I think this is a this is an area where you can start to 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 try and systematize or or at least to try and explore the things we all experience that sometimes you're on and sometimes you're off sometimes you're feeling like a like you can do anything and sometimes you're not and so how do we how do we try and facilitate the conditions where an athlete uh, feels like they can conquer the world at the start of their their race or their game um and I think stuff like i, I so I think sports psychology which I used to be somewhat skeptical of I think with but, but I think that those sorts of things like motivational self-talk can be, uh, are something to pay attention to. But I, but I also, I guess, so to, 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 loop back, I, I think understanding that there isn't one formula for everybody that, that a, a sort of a mantra that's going to help one athlete feel wonderful is going to feel hopelessly cheesy to another athlete. And so you have to try and help guide the athlete to, to the, to the point where he or she is feeling comfortable. And you also have to try and assess that, uh, you know, that maybe not every athlete is going to respond to rah-rah speeches uh, in the same way that not every athlete is going to respond to some sort of drum circle or something that, you know, uh, getting in touch with their feelings. You, you have to kind of, uh, you know, the, there's only so far I could have gone in Centro's direction, right? Like I, I can't remake myself in his image. He's a different human than me and, and every athlete is, is, is different. So I think kind of asking yourself, how, how can right. I... How can I build my team's confidence, but also how can I build the individual confidence of my athletes? Is maybe a, a place to, to to start.
1: Well, maybe that's the start of your next book, My Adventures with Central.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Central already wrote a book, and uh, you know, I, I think everyone who has ever trained with Central or or spend a night at the at the at the bar with him has a a book to write. Um, he he's a you know, and I I, I really want to emphasize. Uh, just in case it didn't come across, I, you know, I have the, the, the hugest respect f- for him. W- one of the, one of the, one of the things that someone told me just before I started training with him, I think maybe it was Scott Anderson, who was a miler back in the day. This the, the, You know, w- you may not always understand what he's saying, but y- you will, if you train with Central. you will have this unconquerable desire. You will just so want to run well for his approval. And it was, it's so true. He just has a a, a magnetic personality that you just, even when I was like, "Why are you telling me to do this?" I was still like, "I just want to do it. Whatever you're telling me to do, I want to do it well." So that you're, you know, I, I, he's a, he was a, a he's kind of the the paragon of one style of coach of inspirational coaching, and so I, I'm really grateful for what I learned from f- from him, even if uh, I sometimes learned that by running poorly and realizing that I wasn't taking the right the right messages at the time.
1: And that's important because like a lot of the uh, coaches we laurel in at least middle distance running, you know, uh, Gags, um, uh, Bill Bowerman, um, even Arthur Lydiard, they had these larger than life magnetic personalities, right? And it goes to show you, yes, they, they are aware of the science. Some of them, you know, are even science base themselves but they fundamentally understand the bridge was that connection the bridge was that human emotional element and if you can get someone fired up it's a magnitude of practice thing again and it's authentic for them for that individual right you can probably see them create something that neither the coach nor the athlete thought they were capable of on that day of the race or maybe in that practice but hopefully on race day and You know, I I know that's where I use Steve a lot and a lot of other people who are um, very analytical and science-based to help me because I I tend to fault a little bit more towards that emotional realm. But it's also good to see that we're having these dialogues and conversations. I think that's where the next big step is in sports performance is a better dialogue between the philosophers and the scientists, a better dialogue between the psychologists and uh, the coaches and the scientists for people who have the research, have the data have uh you know seen this expressed in the lab but then also people who have the antidote evidence from years and years and years of practice and seeing expressed out on the playing field and it will all be better for it as long as we keep these dialogues continued so you know on behalf of steve and i uh alex thank you for coming on this because it's been great to have you here talking with us for the last hour
2: well thanks guys it's been it's been a lot of fun and i uh, yeah I, I wish i'd uh, wish i would had this conversation 20 years ago uh, so that i could have benefited from it as an athlete
0: <laughs> well th- thanks a lot alex and uh where can uh, people check you out, see your book, anything you uh, want to plug to our great listeners?
2: Yeah, probably easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle's is uh, Sweat Science. And uh, I do have a website, uh, where you can get more details. But Twitter, I post, you know, whenever I write something or see, see an article I'm interested in, I'll post it there. Uh, my book, Endure, is available uh, at your local bookstore and, uh, you know, various, you know, Amazon and everywhere else. So uh, if you're interested, you can check it out there.